Welcome to episode 7 of Untold Wealth, your favorite economics and history-based podcast. My name is Devin, and I'm here with my co-host. First of luck. Happy to be here again. Yes. Again, yeah. And welcome to episode 6, all right? For those of you who have not heard an episode, listened to us, well, firstly, welcome in. And yeah. secondly, let me explain to you how it works here. So Vince and I, buddies, best of pals, but we share a passion for economics, all right? We mm-hmm. both studied it uh, in university or, I mean, to, to a relatively you know, high, low degree. We got our bachelor's in economics, essentially, is what I'm saying. But the passion has kind of stayed there throughout our, our careers now and our friendship. So the natural progression in 2023 is to start a podcast, and that's why we're here. And uh, it's been very, very fun so far. All right, so what we do is we meet, we work out a subject for each episode, all right? Some subjects we've had in the past is what's the deal with gold, pirates, Fort Knox, everyone wants it. But today's uh, today's title is Iced Out. Is the ice economy melting as we speak? I'm all right. particularly proud of this title. Uh, this was yours. This was yours, 100%. <laughs> um, and I will be honest, when I first saw it, I was thinking, how was ice created? What are the supply chains for ice and stuff like that? But sure, sure. that was obviously stupid because I'm sure 90% of it is just like industrial ice is kind of just, you know, either made by people and like shipped, you know, locally. So it doesn't really make sense where I was taking it. Okay. And that's when I learned that ice was another name for diamonds. All right. So so that's what I'm going to be speaking about. All right. Diamonds. Um, and the best part about this podcast is that we both make this title or one of us makes this title and we can both take it in different directions. All right. So that's probably what's going to happen in this episode. Absolutely. Vin- Vince and I had a bit of a catch up before the episode and uh, quick- I quickly realized that we both weren't going to be talking about diamonds. All right. Um, okay. So I'll start us off. But actually, before Vince... Before yes. I start us off, just give me give me the briefest of inklings as to what you're going to be talking about. Like, even if it's just a little a little clue. Ice. Quite. You're going to be speaking about ice. Clearly and simply. Okay. All right. Well, I'm 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 glad there's going to be some interesting stuff to talk about it if you've if you've researched it. So so I'm I'm thrilled. But okay, I'm going to be talking about diamonds all right um diamonds are something that is not new to the economics world or the marketing world and if you've heard about it it's a story that's stuck in your head for ages essentially you'll never you'll never forget about it once you've broached the topic and you've dug you've dug a bit deeper watched a few youtube videos or had a few google searches it doesn't mean it's not interesting but it's definitely quite well heard of this history of diamonds and how they became, how they uh, grew to such a prestige and level right. of worth. Yeah. So brief history as a South African, Vince and I, uh, Vince and I are both South Africans. Um, the history of diamonds is quite intrinsically linked towards the history of South Africa, mm-hmm. or at least, at least some of the history of South Africa. Um, so yeah, cut back to 1906 or 05, um, when, when diamonds first uh, started being discovered 
in South Africa. I think it was discovered in Kimberley or Bloemfontein. One of the two. Most likely. Um, yeah, and this was kind of the first time when diamonds were were discovered, at least in such mass quantities. Um, and immediately when, you know, you can think back in the days and something like this, such, as beautiful and refined as a diamond is discovered, people are going to want to commodify it. They're going to want to sell it and they're going to want to make it the next big thing. All right. And that went quite well. All right. A company called the De Beers Corporation. Infamous now. Yes, and, very infamous. And for reasons we're definitely going to explain a little bit later. But they were kind of this, this global monopoly on it. They kind of bought up all the mines that started popping up across South Africa and Kimberley and Bloemfontein, you know, all throughout South Africa. And they said, yeah, these are ours now. So they, they, in fact, did form a monopoly. It later turned into something of an oligopoly or a cartel, but we'll get to that later. But this is kind of how uh, diamonds started, okay? Yes. Where it changes is that very quickly, people started to discover them all over the world because diamonds aren't actually such a scarce resource, okay? And to a titan like De Beers, who had made millions and billions, I'm not too sure about billions, but definitely a lot of untold wealth um, <laughs> from uh, from selling diamonds. Probably um, billions, right? You know? This, it, I would say. I mean, in real terms, I would say uh, something like that. But yeah, this was definitely a hurdle for them because when you're literally sitting on a diamond mine, when you're sitting on a gold mine yourself, you don't want another person to have a gold mine all right there's two reasons for that firstly it's because there's competition all right and competition as all economists say there's competitive competitiveness in the market it drives down prices consumers are the ones that benefit right the so that's the first reason the bane of monopolies uh the second reason is that um what's the second reason what's the second reason Ah, a lack of scarcity. The actual value right. of the diamond itself is now no longer perceived as being scarce. This notion of scarcity is also something that is very intrinsically tied to uh, a large number of commodities and, and things that people purchase, right? It definitely is a factor in demand and supply that drives uh, commodities and, and things to different prices, okay? So these two reasons, um, it didn't sit well with the beers, all right? So... They did what they do best, and they controlled the supply, all right? Okay, but controlling, and by that I mean they they went into details, and they started creating this worldwide oligopoly from that point. I think it was about the 1930s or 1940s when a lot of these mines started popping up. So Notably, they bought the mines or the companies that owned them? Or? They didn't, I didn't think they bought the mines. I'm not too sure on the exact specifics of it, but it's more like OPEC, where they entered into... Or, right. you know, tacit agreements, okay? And this is something that is called an oligopoly, all right? And oligopolies, for some economics theory uh, enthusiasts out there, there's oligopolies have the capacity to turn into cartels, assuming there is Im not implicit collusion, explicit collusion, which is the formal signing of agreements, right? And in most countries, that does not fly. Okay, but if you put your headquarters somewhere else, you know, De Beers headquarters is in London and you don't put it in the US or some other more progressive leading nations that, that frown on uh, or, or have like more lax 
monopoly laws, yeah. then you can easily kind of get away with, with being a cartel and, and having a hook over the supply, right? So that was going well for the beers. They, they managed to solve that part of the equation, all right? But what the beers is most infamously known for, all right? Because there's been a lot of cartels in the world, okay? And, or, and monopolies, and they've not been quite as famous as the beers. The reason that the beers was very, very famous, okay, is because not only did they control the supply, but they also managed to manufacture such a high value for diamonds in the most successful marketing campaign that the world has ever seen, hmm. starting in the 19, in 1948, I believe. All right. Um, how did they do it? Well, they knew that diamonds, at that point, diamonds didn't have much industrial use. People knew they were hard and stuff, <laughs> but they were pretty. Okay, but prettiness only goes so far to determine value, right? I think gold at that point, that was our first episode on our podcast, was around yes. $35, $30. I mean, gold was worth something, but it wasn't an obscene amount, right? Right. So they crafted they crafted a few campaigns, to be honest. They, they used a variety of, at the time, it was new age marketing tactics. They used influences, um, slogans, you know, they very much embedded diamonds in the minds of people. But what was the core central message that they were embedding? They tied diamonds to something that human beings cannot get away with, which is love. All right. Oh. Which is love. They, they coined the phrase, diamonds are forever. All right. Which was a subsidiary to how they push diamonds as being engagement rings. Okay, in 1948, especially in like New York and, and the United States. Before then, and this is something so weird when you first hear about it, if this is your first time hearing about it, you, you probably thought your entire life that you buy someone a diamond ring, that's just normal for, for your marriage, right? It's, yeah. But, but that is ne that's never always been the case. Perhaps a ring, yes, but a diamond on the ring was was new age technology in the 1940s especially before then it was unheard of so, so they just had the ring before or like they, they as far as i'm aware they were just rings all right some 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 rings were just gold gold was quite standard some were just some were just like necklaces and stuff some people didn't some traditions didn't even do rings but diamonds 100 percent no <laughs> so that was their first campaign they pushed you want to show your love you showed it with diamonds all right while they're controlling the supply. In addition to that, they said, we don't want people selling their diamonds on secondary markets because it will lower the diamonds they already have on hand because they want to be the first sellers of diamonds. They coined this phrase, diamonds are forever, because you don't want to sell your diamonds and purchase a diamond from a secondhand seller because that's, that's perceived as, at least how they were trying to push it forward as being perceived as, you know, that's someone else's love. That's someone else's diamond that signified a love of a different marriage. Why would you purchase another diamond? It's like an heirloom, you know? basically. You, ha you have to get an original diamond. Yeah, like, I guess in some in some families, like a diamond ring heirloom might have made sense. But, you know, small cases like that, the beers can eat the costs. Really? But on a large scale, they promoted this diamonds are forever. <laughs> Famously, they also got Marilyn Monroe in movies to sing uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend yes so, exactly i mean you can look that you can look that up it's on youtube very very 
cool music video, firstly, but also such slimy marketing tactics. That's insane. Uh, yeah, so so this was the the diamond world that De Beers essentially created. All right, um, and now there's kind of two parts to this that have gone uh, two parts that I'll describe a little bit further. But do you have any questions thus far, Vince? Any noteworthy uh, findings? Well, it's kind of blown my brain that before the 1940s or so, as you said, like that people weren't getting diamond rings; that it was just rings of other materials. Like that's kind of because I imagine things were like today. There's almost a stigma where if you want to like marry someone, you get a, a wedding ring or an engagement. Ring. Mm, that's exactly like three times your monthly salary, or it needs to be like. Uh yes, that's yes. has like infiltrated all of us. And now I'm like coming to terms with the fact that like having thought that before, I've been. I've been marketed to, I've been lied to. You've been misled. Yeah, but yes, that that three month salary you didn't pull that you didn't pull that out of your behind. I um, hope not. <laughs> in fact, it was two months back in the day, but it was an arbitrary number, right? They were trying to artificially jack up the value of these not so scarce diamonds. Okay, so in marketing campaigns thereafter, they said diamond or spirit were at least worth two months salary to give to your Jeez. to your lovely female friend right it was always marketed from male to female right mm. um as is traditional back in the day um but yeah that that two month salary was just another little tip of a little little cherry on top to such a successful marketing campaign and the fact that so many children myself included yourself included vince are growing up seeing it on tv knowing that 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 is the status quo that people have to meet you know the status quo is now what needs to be broken um that's the most that's the most interesting part so okay so it went well for the beers it is still going well for the beers in, in all honesty but it's been a bit shaky um recently all right so technology has progressed to such a degree that we can now create diamonds, all right? And your immediate thought might be, the fact that this that this can happen would immediately kill the beers, right? That wasn't yeah. quite the case. I'm actually not too sure when the first lab-grown diamonds were made, but I can assure you it wasn't that long ago, but also that uh, it was extremely expensive to make. Um, <laughs> nowadays, it's not expensive to make. Um, but I mean, it's not like it's not like you go buying a hot dog in the street, right? It's, right. It does it does cost something, but notably less than running mining operations. Okay, so nowadays that is an alternative to diamonds, and there's synthetic a few things. Diamonds. Synthetic diamonds, yes, that's what they're called. All right, and that in combination with a with a few things are starting to slowly whittle away at this De Beers. Uh, oligopoly that they've built off throughout the years and that they've had close ties with countries over i i i kid you not three weeks ago botswana has released or at least at least i've seen news articles about botswana saying they want to reconsider negotiations with De Beers because under that negotiation De Beers was entitled to 90 percent of all the diamonds that were being mined for Botswana Jeez. and that's that's the level of control they had 
That's the level of control this oligopoly had on all the supply of diamonds from their registered diamonds mine. Registered Imagine diamond mines, yeah. It was the same for like South African mines at some point or another. I don't know if it's the case today, but I'm actually like- not too. Sh- I'm not too sure, but you can you can bet your left testicle that any diamond mine in this world has seen a De Beers person walk through their walk through their doors once or twice to the degree 90%. and the, yes to the degree and extent to which each individual diamond mine is influenced obviously even if we did know there would be that tinge of uncertainty um because you know sources of information change in their quality but yeah that is that is how that is the extent to which to be as uh, has been successful but they're on the downtrend um, <laughs> companies nowadays have have not been very thrilled with working with them because they've realized that they don't want to mine anymore. They can just grow diamonds and diamonds are, are so um, plentiful that they don't need to work with the beers as much as they needed to in the past with the beers, global supply chains. They've got their own supply chains. Now they can, they can do just as well without the backing of a big cartel um, for the best in their own, in their own markets that they want to work in. Right. Um, yeah. Another story was that, Australia, this was quite funny. So Australia discovered diamonds way back when as well. This and this is one of the examples of countries around the world um, discovering their diamonds. Australia was there, all right? Uh, and Debeer said, no, no, no. We want you guys on our cartel plan. <laughs> Australia was not convinced. They were like, no, we don't need to be. Um, they said, no, we'll make you stinking amounts of money. And will even tell the world that your diamonds are of a different quality. Oh. And that marketing still stays to this day. Australian diamonds are seen as the some of the rarest diamonds in the world, right? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So so they, they did scummy tactics like that. That's um that if you know anything about oligopolies, all right, and different players in an oligopoly, it's that they can't compete on price, all right? Mm. There's various reasons. Um for that they have to complete and compete in product differentiation essentially i don't know if you remember that from our third or second year lectures but but uh Fake. that yeah honest. they ha- they have to compete in product differentiation because as soon as they mess with the price the other players in that cartel see that someone is is uh moving away from the price model that they had all tacitly or explicitly agreed upon and then they will have to match the the profit model, that new price, or the entire cartel fall up, fall off the face of the earth, and it'll go back to just normal competition, right? Yeah. And players in a cartel don't really want that, so they all like have this agreement where it's like, uh, we'll we'll in terms of marketing and product differentiation, saying our diamonds have a different hue, a different color, a different authenticity, a different history, a whole different marketing campaign within a marketing campaign about their diamonds. Um, that's kind of how they differentiate diamonds in different countries, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know the sense. exact extent, but Australia is the prime example about that, at least in the diamond market. Um, so yeah, the beers, the beers right now definitely has less of a stranglehold in terms of that uh, monopoly that people always call it or oligopoly. Doesn't really matter. Both of them do the same thing as long as all the players are, you know, tooting the same horn. Hmm. Um, right now, they're kind of styling themselves as just an individual uh, diamond brand, a diamond seller. 
Um, oh, they see. never used to do that though. They used to be the ones controlling uh, the mines themselves. Got so- the mines themselves. They also controlled the secondary distributors. They would only they they would have like something. I think they called them site holders. They called them site holders. Yes, and they would control about twenty or so site. No, one thousand two hundred site holders Jeez. worldwide, and tell them what diamonds they will be receiving. The site holders themselves have to go there <laughs> and say, "Hey, we need these diamonds." But if the beers catch that a site holder was not doing, you know, what they were supposed to do, they were deviating from the big, the, you know, the the big brother plan that they had created. They would just not give them the diamonds that they had requested. So site holders themselves, who were supposed to be distributing to your local stores and jewelry stores, um, they also really got shafted by De Beers back in the day, right? Um, if they weren't doing what they were told, which is setting prices at the price they were told, um, selling the diamonds exactly how they were being told to sell them. Because then they would get their, they wouldn't get their supply of diamonds because De Beers has... Their, their pockets in every single diamond mine in the world. They sound like quite the villain. <laughs> yes. At one stage, it was that bad. It's not quite that bad nowadays. Um, but yeah, that is that is the whole diamond story. And if you've heard it once, it's blown your mind and you've walked past it. But even if it has blown your mind once and you do think about it again, it is just wholly incredible. It's disgusting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't think it's the best... The, practice to extort miners and you know low-income nations for, you know for their mining capacity and things like that there's notable devious deeds that they've committed but it's an impressive it is the most successful marketing campaign in history bar none there's been nothing that has been quite so um quite so effective as it to be as diamond campaign uh, because because even if you tell someone hey diamonds are worthless don't buy it your significant other, for a large majority of the population, is not going to buy that story. They're going to want a diamond on their hand anyway. And that's exactly where they want you, essentially. It's a good point. I mean, mm. I think, I wonder for how long, potentially, this like 1940s like marketing campaign will exist in the minds of generations. Like, I, I don't know if maybe in this generation, in our generation, can, whether... Can, no, yeah. go on. Well, I was going to say that, like, there might be more of a tolerance or more of a, a flexibility to buy rings that aren't necessarily like diamonds, but other gems of mm. preference, perchance. Um, That's true. I was actually just going to ask, have you thought of any campaign that was wildly successful and became a status quo and then kind of just phased out? I mean, I was thinking of cigarettes. Cigarettes, you know, the whole sex sells with the with Sigmund Freud when he developed right. that mo- that woman's march through the street with with them all you know, smoking cigarettes, which was off limits to women back in the day. It ended up doubling the <laughs> doubling the market for cigarettes because now women could be seen as being able to buy cigarettes. <laughs> but cigarettes have kind of fallen off the trend lately. I think so. But I think that's. Well- like yeah, industries for- like alcohol and fast food and like sodas and stuff, those immediately come to mind for like popular marketing campaigns. But it's so easy to disprove them because they're bad for you. So I don't like, you can't tell someone a diamond is bad for you. So That's true. it's hard to be like, hey, here's a study like you can do for smoking. You know, you have a stronger likelihood of getting lung cancer. You can't really do that for diamonds. 
you can tell them the practices behind it are bad. Blood but, diamonds uh, and stuff, yeah. Yes, but as soon as as soon as it becomes real for the human being, then the marketing campaign becomes less successful. But yeah. I can't think of a campaign unless it's like medically disproven that ends, you know, like ends badly. It's um, so a good point. Will Food it ever thought. be? Will it ever be? Uh, leave a comment down below. Yeah, yeah, please. Is and tell us. Do you think this ice economy is melting as we speak? I, I think. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I think so. To be honest, I think I'm for the best too. Like, as you said, like if we're playing, paying exorbitant amounts of money for something that's like not worth as much, just because there's been this elevated scarcity or this forced scarcity, not just in marketing, but in the actual supply that the beers is also putting out mm. into the market like yeah no thank you <laughs> i want to mm. pay you know a better price or just buy something else for yes and not having price. to feel like i have to f be forced to buy that thing it's like two there's two things the price is outrageous exactly. and it's been forced as the status quo for so long it's like doubly outrageous to you it's like <laughs> really does hit you hard when you think about it but cool vincent tell me about real ice i want to know real ice yeah the ice industry so yeah i when i thought of this it was kind of a spur of the moment thing i just uh it, it came to me in a flash and i and i wrote it down in a little document and i i liked it because it's fairly ambiguous Ice is a term that can obviously mean different things, from frozen water to diamonds and jewellery. And as I recently learned today, it's also a thing, a slang word for meth, which <laughs> didn't come to my mind and maybe would have adjusted my research if I had been like given more time. But yeah, I assumed you were going to tackle diamonds just based on our previous conversation. So I went little ice cubes and whether or not the ice industry has reached its peak or is just tackling its prime right now. And in the process of that, I got to dive deep into the history of ice and how it slowly became something that people kind of can't live without, like ice in your drinks, ice in like cooler boxes, like ice is fairly prevalent in our lives in most cases for going out to eat, going out to drink, things like that. But it's a very fascinating topic. And I think with like most topics that I've looked into the history of, it goes back a lot further than I thought was possible, to be entirely honest. Before ice was used as like a way to basically just leisurely keep things cool, it was used to ensure that food was preserved for longer periods of time. Many different societies had different ways of doing this before its boom in the 19th century. Can I guess one way? Can I guess one way. So this might not be a guessing. I actually saw this, but there were some Scandinavian uh, societies and this is how they used to store ice. They used to literally harvest it in the winter. Okay. They used to build ice sheds. Then they yes. used to, they used to plonk the ice in these ice sheds and put straw over it because obviously straws are nice insulators, right? They're going to mm -hmm. keep that same temperature. And then they used to just do ice straw, ice straw until this entire shed was piled up. And then they would just use that throughout the year. And it was surprisingly effective at keeping their ice. Um, but I'm not too sure how effective. Is that's, that is that one of the ways? That's actually like the most prevalent way 
that people used to keep eyes. Before then, however, like in Mediterranean South American societies, people used to literally just get ice from the Alps and the Andes during the summer, like climb these vast mountain ranges and then bring the that ice to the city. Societies like India and Egypt used to basically evaporate water quite rapidly and then leave it overnight so that the evaporation would turn into the kind of like the slushy ice and they would use that. There's even, huh. a, ta- there's even a tablet that dates back to the Bronze Age, which is about nearly 2,000 years ago, which spoke about, as you said, ice houses that were built for storing ice to be used throughout the summer months. And ice houses were incredible. Like, as you said, they used straw and sometimes sawdust, and they kept this ice underground. And it essentially stayed frozen, in some cases, until early autumn of the next year. The Romans used them, basically. How does that, how does that work? Like, what, what thermodynamic law is keeping an ice house cold for an entire year through summer? Like, I don't get it. There's no electricity. My mind can't comprehend <laughs> it. I don't get it. It's a good point. I think the fact that, like, generally, keeping things on the ground makes things cooler than, like, the above ground if it's quite hot. And I guess straw and sawdust are just fairly good insulators to the point where the ice is keeping itself cool in most cases. But... Yeah, makes, I think makes no sense. But 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 before you go on, these yes. guys were literally traveling up to like the Alps and bringing back ice. Like, Correct. like that was that was an industry for them. They they sold that, or was it just used for themselves? Like they did at, that. Really? At that point in time, I don't think it was in industry or like the economic term of a market. Like in most cases, like Roman emperors would request people to bring ice from faraway uh, places and they would pay for them sure but it was the the kind of a dubious market like i don't think there were specifically industries at this point in time that would have people regularly go up there um but nevertheless like they were being used like romans had these extravagant parties nero and caligula would have like honeyed uh mix ice with honey and have this like refreshing dessert as well uh and that later got adopted by italy once the roman empire fell after some wars and such and then france adopted it from them these ice houses that is and began the practice of flaunting ice at parties to show off their wealth because obviously at this point in time it was very expensive to do this having the ice house getting and transporting the ice and for the most part it stayed as this novelty act. That is, until the trend came to a fledgling nation time called the United States. Thomas Jefferson had built an ice house in his Monticello estate after his kind of tour through Europe, where he picked up the kind of fashionable fashionable practice that this was. And he later convinced George Washington to do the same. And while still a lavish experience, very expensive, the idea had begun to spread through America. And now skipping ahead a little bit, cutting to about the late 18th and early 19th century, on one faithful day in kind of like the eastern side of America, Boston, New York, etc., the Tudor family were enjoying some delicious ice cream on a summer's day picnic. One of the elder, eldest brothers of this family, William Tudor, jokes he basically made a joke that they should be cutting ice into cubes and selling them 
to the hot and humid like West Indies and the Southern states, just because of how good that experience was having ice cream on a hot oh, day. Oh man, they you know their day was like amazing. They were just going at it on a on a beach or like a park or something like that, and they were just throwing the best ideas because they were in such a good mood. Absolutely, I, I like those days. And you know, everyone lets out on what I imagine is kind of rich, the rich person's chortle not this joke, except for one of the brothers, Frederick Tudor. And, and and what I can only imagine is a spiritual eureka moment. Frederick Tudor decides to dedicate his entire life to selling ice in that moment. What are your thoughts so far? The Tudor family, hey? The progenitors of ice manufacturing. Is, is that what I'm hearing correctly? Uh, Who yeah. are these guys? They were just dudes chilling? Yeah, actually, uh, the Tudor family was a fairly prevalent uh, Boston family. I know the brother in Mansion, I think his name William Tudor, was actually a famous poet or, or something like that. Uh, I'll have to double check, but they were fairly famous individuals. Um, a, a well-known American like family at that point in time, kind of like the New England, Boston, Boston, Massachusetts individuals. But it was just Frederick who had this idea. The rest of the family had their own things going about. Okay, but the one brother came up with the idea, the poet, and then another brother was the one who was like, I'm going to take it to reality. In Is essence. That yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I'm following. But All as right. far as I can tell, William Tudor kind of made it as a joke. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, to, to establish the context of the times that we're talking about here, the 1800s, ice was popular but expensive and something that the wealthy consumed regularly. These wealthy families had their own ice houses, as you mentioned, and they would have a stock of ice that could last them over the hotter months of the year. And nevertheless, by the 1800s, though, there started being an increase in demand to the point where some farmers who had ice houses uh, would cut ice in the winter from lakes and stuff and sell that ice to these wealthy families because of this increase in demand, mm. leading to kind of a small-scale market. So back to Frederick. He came from a fairly rich family. So he begins to build this ice shipping business at fairly big cost to his own. He had to take out a few loans, things like that. And he essentially tried to replicate this small-scale business, taking ice from the northern states to these hot portions of the United States, such as the West Indies and the southern U.S. states, as a luxury good. And was Ho he doing was he doing that the ice lake thing? Yes. Um, okay. He he was cutting ice into like two foot by two foot cubes. They had like this whole uh, machination that they would like measure it by, and then they would keep it overnight. And then the plan was to get that on a ship, insulate it, and take it down south. And kind of similar to the beers, he was hoping to jump on the market before it became a big thing and establish a monopoly by communicating with the Cuban government, the West Indies, uh, the Caribbean, just basically being like, I'm going to be your ice supplier. And if you think about it, it wasn't unfounded. Ice at this point in time was a free product. You only needed to pay for the labor to cut the cubes of ice from the lake in the winter. Hmm. The sawdust that they used to insulate it was a byproduct from lumber mills and things like that. So that wouldn't cost much either. And so on the 10th of February, 1806, his first shipment 
of ice aboard a vessel that he had to buy because no other ship would allow him to take the ice because they thought it was so stupid. <laughs> Departs it was from like Boston. easy to do and they're like nah you're stupid like no exactly <laughs> not, put, not putting kgs and kgs of ice on our ship and this is probably thought it was gonna melt exactly this is a three-week journey down to the western indies like they, they thought the ice would just be water by the time they got there the boston gazette at the time reported uh, with the headline no joke a vessel with a cargo of 80 tons of ice has cleared out from this port for Martin Q. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. We hope this will not prove to be a s- slippery speculation, which is... Wow. They said that? They were they, spicy back in the day, man. They, wow. they, they, it's very sassy. I, I could actually see this being like a headline today, quite funny enough, even though it was like 200 years ago. Um, but yeah, a couple of weeks later, first ship, 80 tons of ice, and he arrives... Uh, in the Caribbean, with the ice in okay condition. He's lost a couple of tons just because of how long it's taken and some errors with his insulation. And he arrives, it's the sweltering, sweltering Caribbean heat. What do you think happens next when he arrives? Okay, it goes one of two ways, right? It's either he's treated as like a savior and everyone flocks to the ship and they all see this ice being transported and they follow this ice and then they go purchase it as you know as soon as it goes on sale right. or everyone like doesn't care and it just flops massively for some reason which i don't think is the case so i think i'm gonna go with the with the former i'm gonna say he was you know praised or he it became very successful at least on his first voyage Devin, nobody wanted to buy this man. (laughs) It was the latter. Okay, gotcha. He could barely sell it. And he left the island at a severe loss with his tail between his legs. Very unsuccessful. Yes, that's rough. Does it a couple more times to to similar losses. He's not making any money. And as time passes, his family's wealth diminishes. There are a few wars that occur. And a few other unfortunate events lead to Frederick being thrown into debtor's prison at least three times for being unable to pay his loans that he's used to finance his businesses of this ice business and also bailing out his relatives between the years of 1809 and 1813. So seven years after he launched his first voyage. Bad bad credit score. He had a bad credit score. Very bad credit score. But to quote the man himself, in light of this, uh, Frederick Tutor says, He who gives back at the first repulse, and without striking the second blow, despairs of success has never been, is not, and never will be a, a hero in war, love, or business. Which is basically him saying, dude, if you give up at the first repulse, or the second repulse without striking back. You're not meant for this game, which I, I find quite funny. Um, yeah, but also, add, okay. you sure he wasn't the poet? What the hell? Uh, I mean, it's pretty. <laughs> I don't know if this is just 200 years of language being changed, but it's fairly eloquent. And not to not give him his credit, through these failures, Frederick had learned to streamline his business. 
he learns how to keep the ice cooler for longer with better combinations of insulation. He added kind of like-minded individuals to his business that innovated cutting the ice more effectively. They invented like a saw that would get it done a lot more efficiently. And of course, his main issue, the art of selling. And according to one source I read, Frederick began to use tactics that convinced people that they needed ice. He would bring out ice coolers while in the hot, uh, hot state of Carolina, of South Carolina, which would lead people to like crave that first ice cold sip. He convinced barkeeps to offer chill drinks at the same price as regular drinks, and then the customers would automatically demand their drinks to be chilled. He even helped restaurants make ice cream and showed hospitals that ice was a solid way to quell a feverish patient. He basically made his own demand by layers, layers oning and like marketing and, and selling his ice to the southern states and the West Indies. Well, here, here I was saying that diamonds was the best marketing uh, endeavor in, in history, but this sounds uh, maybe not on par, but very impressive. What the hell? Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that working. <laughs> it's impressive. And I found another quote from him that said, a man who has drunk his drinks cold at the same expense for one week can never be presented with, with them warm again. Which oh, yeah. I think is a fair assessment of that. He's basically like, I'll take a one week loss for a lifetime customer. Exactly. The week. This kind of like uh, the first one's free marketing tactic was very successful. And his operation grew. He had a few hiccups along the way. He made some like coffee like futures or he invested in some coffee futures that didn't pan did, out did he make well. a fr- did he invent the frappuccino to be honest with me was, <laughs> no, was, no, was no. it frederick no he did a lot of things but not that and and by 1833 he was dubbed the ice king and had basically shipped uh, at one point in time 180 tons of ice to calcutta india with an agreement the, from like the British colonies. Those are big numbers. I can't fathom how big those numbers are. Like that's a lot of ice. <laughs> it's a lot it's of a ice. lot of tons of ice. Yeah. And that was from one shipment. Over the, the course of things, he sold a lot more tons. He grew his monopoly back home in Boston. And in eighteen sixty four, he died. Rich and successful. However, Good on him. Wow. I think with this topic at hand, this topic sentence, I think the ice industry boomed with Frederick and hasn't really met that caliber since. Like with the invention of like refrigerators, I think the demand for ice has slowly begun to diminish over time. Mm. Like the introduction of refrigeration basically cancelled out the need for ice because you just could preserve food without needing to. Things like synthetic ice that is made from kind of pl- uh, plastics and polymers gained popular popularity in like skating rinks and hockey training facilities and basically eliminates the need for like refrigeration. Same with like beverage packing consumption. Like today, you can get a can of like ice cold Coke from like any freezer in a shopping mall or a store without needing to like get the actual ice for it. Yeah. And obviously things like 
industries where ice is most popular, like tourism and hospitality, that have a significant role uh, the demand for ice are impacted by economic downturns. I mean, the pandemic, for example, really took a hit in hospitality and tourism, and I imagine and I imagine ice as well. Nevertheless, the ice industry brings in about two to three billion dollars per year, which is a substantial amount of money, but definitely not as popular as I think it was or could be both in kind of the mental space of consumers and in like the real world shipping ice all over the world. Mm. As you said at the very beginning, if ice is sold today, it's most likely local. It's not being shipped from Boston to India. No, I mean, I bet you could find one niche company out there that's like, um, what's the Alaskan ice, you know? And then you like right. ship it and then you like can taste the salmon in the river or whatever, <laughs> through the ice, <laughs> ice however they market ice, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, you just go down to your nearest gas station or you have a refrigerator at home that can just make your own ice or you have little ice trays that you can put in your freezer and you're good and you only really use it when a drink demands it or some kind of niche recipe demands it like now it's just a nice to have everything is already cold if you want it to be so why do i have to have these condensed you know condensed water ice blocks yeah yeah I was just thinking as well, like shipping lake water that's been turned to ice all over the like world is a great way, I imagine, to also spread disease, uh, assuming this oh, ice wow. was not cleansed. Well, you, but... hear the pre- you hear the prehistoric ice thing. I, uh, true. The ice does. Yeah, it's still water. Oh, shoot, that's true. Yeah, and diseases, they, they do well in cold. Yeah, they, they don't die. Yeah. <laughs> Scary thought. But uh, yeah, I I think I was always, always going to go with ice for this topic. And I'm glad I did because this, like, sometimes when you're doing research, it's difficult to find a, a good thread to follow. But when you're prompted with something like searching for something to look for and then you see the ice king, like, I have to talk about that. Oh, man. That's the gem when you're researching and you find a little story like that and you're like... Give me five different wiki articles on this and this and this and another and a YouTube video at this and this and the story itself just it's tantalizing and you know it's writes itself because it obviously has been written but it's just interesting stuff absolutely so so that's the ice king hey so we we have the De Beers the diamonds king the diamond kings mm-hmm. and we have Frederick himself as the ice king yeah um, yeah the, okay who's the meth king. <laughs> um leave leave a Walt comment White's below if you know who the best king is yeah <laughs> you spoiled it man oh, what the hell all right cool man um yeah, yeah so any takeaways from from what we've said vincent i think i i need to reevaluate potentially getting a diamond ring at this point i i think i need to invest in uh, I don't know emerald stock or amethyst stock or I, I'm, some other. Gem. I'm thinking. I'm thinking some kind of like ring that doesn't have any precious gem on it. Like the ring itself is just like ornately crafted and like onyx mm. or something. Like that sounds appealing to me. 
I'm not the biggest gem fan. But at the same time, it doesn't matter what you want. It matters what your significant other wants. Other ones, which is the whole catch. Diamonds but all right, guys. Whatever you've watched this on, we hope you enjoyed. Leave a comment below. Do you think these uh, these <laughs> ice economies are melting as we speak? Or do you think they are here to stay forever? Regardless, yeah. this has been Devin and my co-host. Vince, I also want to... <laughs> oh, go please. for it. We, we are on Spotify and YouTube and likely a few other platforms at this point in time. But please do leave us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed. It really helps us out. Um, and yeah, give us some suggestions on what you'd like to uh, hear about next.